You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. In each episode, we'll talk about two themes from our 2018 reading challenge, 10 to Try. Learn more about the challenge and see a list of all the categories at kcls.org slash 10 to Try. On this episode of The Desk Set, we're talking about two 10 to Try categories, books made into movies or TV shows and books with titles longer than four words, which might be this year's trickiest category, at least to search for. Author Matt Ruff joins us to talk about his book, Lovecraft Country. Inspired by mid-century African-American travel guides and classic sci-fi and horror, this book is being adapted into an HBO miniseries with Jordan Peele producing. Then, we talk about the best and worst book-to-screen adaptations and the stories we'd most like to see on screen. Finally, we're joined by Kim Fu, author of The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore, that's six words in case you didn't count, to talk about why children make interesting characters and the difference between writing poetry and prose. Matt Ruff writes speculative fiction and horror. His latest novel, Lovecraft Country, follows an African-American family in the 1950s through a series of strange and stranger occurrences. It's being turned into a TV series for HBO, produced by Jordan Peele. He joined us in the studio to talk about his inspiration for the book and what it's like to have a book adapted for the screen. I'm uh, Matt Ruff. I'm a novelist, I'm probably best known for Fool on the Hill, and I've written six novels in total, and my most recent one is Lovecraft Country. For listeners who haven't read the book yet, what is Lovecraft Country about? It's a story about a black family who owned a travel agency in Chicago in 1954, and um, the travel agency publishes a guide called the Safe Negro Travel Guide that lists and reviews uh, hotels and restaurants across the country that serve black customers. And this was inspired by real guidebooks that existed at the time. And the main protagonist, Atticus Turner, is a 26-year-old son of the family just back from fighting in the Korean War, ends up working as a field researcher for the guide. So it's his job to sort of drive around looking for places that, that will take his business. And Atticus and his uncle George, who publishes the guide, are also both um, big science fiction and fantasy and horror nerds. And so the story is about how they and their extended family get drawn into a series of real-life weird tales. Um, so you can kind of think of it like the X-Files if Mulder and Scully were black travel writers living in the Jim Crow era. Yeah, and what kind of research on the Jim Crow era did you do to prepare for the book? A lot of it was just going back, and there, there, are, there are some very interesting books compiling all of the laws, uh, segregation laws at the time. So it was basically familiarizing myself with the kinds of things that you would have to put up with in various different parts of the country. Um, I read about a year's worth of back issues of the Chicago Defender, which is the big black newspaper in, in Chicago at the time. Um, and uh, other research that came up along the way. And then I just spent a lot of time thinking about what my characters' lives were like and what kind of instincts they'd have developed to sort of deal with it. So you talked about how Atticus and George are huge sci-fi and fantasy nerds, and there's a scene early on in the book when Atticus is pulled over by a white trooper, and when he sees the science fiction books in the car, he doubts that they belong to Atticus, and they make him get out of the car so he can do the pat-down and kind of harass him. Um, this moment really invokes the way that a lot of genre fiction, especially science
science fiction and fantasy and horror has either been implicitly or explicitly created by and for a white audience. Did you, as a writer, think about in create, creating a more welcoming space for your readers, or were you grappling with that history? That's what's so funny, is, is when my research, when I would go back, like the Defender would have, every week would have, uh, you know, there was a page about Hollywood and, and what's going on there, and a, uh, you know, book reviews, and a lot of it, even though this was 70 years ago, a lot of it could could come right out of uh, you know social justice Twitter of today in terms of what people were asking for. It's just give us some movies for us to include us in the story. And part of this just came out of my whole life. I've had friends who've you know just felt kind of excluded from from the genre, and so it was it was just sort of natural to to bring that in. And um, I, I think I mentioned in the notes at the end of the novel uh, about Pam Knowles wrote this. Uh, an essay called Shame, uh, I think around, she wrote it back in 2004 or so, and she talks about um, what it was like as a young black girl going to see Star Wars for the first time, and, and on one level, like, geeking out completely the same way everybody does. It was like a religious experience, if you're old enough to have seen it back in the 70s, but at the same time, sort of dawning realization that it was an almost entirely white universe that Lucas had imagined and feeling left out and crushed at the same time. And when I was starting to think about the novel, it was one of the things that sort of I went back to was just her, her talk about that, that weird feeling of both loving it and, and not feeling loved in return. So that certainly played into the novel. Lovecraft in the title of your book is also an author who leaves behind a complicated legacy. I mean, I don't know how complicated it is. I mean, <laughs> he was he was just a, a, a very vocal white supremacist, and um, even even by the standards of his day, he was just he was just really out there on the the, the racist fringe edge. And uh, I just think a lot of, but a lot of the people who fell in love with his work kind of overlook that the way you do when you've got, you know, somebody you, you love otherwise, you just sort of overlook or ignore certain aspects of the work, which is easier to do if, if you're not the person being personally insulted by the, it's much easier to, to sort of pass stuff by or say, well, you know, and again, now it's just we're, we're coming to a point where it's harder to, to overlook that and not have somebody put a hand up and say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> um, I think it was Nettie Okorafor who won an award that was like the bust of his head. It was the World Fantasy Award. And yeah, Nettie won. Uh, yeah. And she the, the award was was a bust of Lovecraft's head and she was just kind of unhappy about that because there were, there were people who understood that it's just kind of a rude way to, to, you know, reward somebody with, with a picture of basically a curio of someone who would have hated your guts and thought you were an animal and other people who were like, well, but you know, that's just the way we've always done it. Why do we have to change? And, and they changed the award. And now I think it, it's a, it's a really cool um, figure of a, a tree and the, the moon caught in the branches. And, but I, I think part of part of this is that science fiction has always patted itself on the back for being forward thinking and open minded. And, and when you think of yourself that way, you don't necessarily, especially if, if you're not listening to people who are trying to point out stuff you're overlooking, it's it's easy to get the idea that yes, we are we are really enlightened and and ahead of the game and then you don't question yourself and then you don't see what you're missing. And for a lot of my favorite horror 
films especially i feel like the inherent horror is more interesting than the supernatural like the human stories that are behind them in the babadook recently i feel like that's really a story about postpartum depression more than like a spooky guy in the corner (laughs) and get out for sure like body swapping super scary white supremacy much more terrifying (laughs) no yeah it it I mean, I, I like them both, but obviously, yeah, that was, that was sort of the, the title of Lovecraft Country is a double entendre because, and that's the thing, it, like, it started out as more of an X-Files type idea. I kind of came to Lovecraft through the back door where I wanted a, a title that would sort of combine the idea of paranormal horror with the horror of white supremacy and sort of play with, well, which is worse and which is creepier. And of course, it's the real world stuff that you actually have to deal with. It's, that's creepier, but I also try to resist the idea that you've got to pick one or the other. I kind of like both. It's like Stephen King's The Shining is another one where people will constantly point out, well, that's really what it's like to be married to an abusive alcoholic. Well, it is, but it's also a really effective, scary haunted house story and a haunted hotel story. And I don't think you have to choose necessarily. I, I like hybrid works. I like being able to combine different pieces of you know the, the the best of what you can do with supernatural and and science fiction with a more rigorous grounding and realism and cycle and particularly you want characters who are are believable and who feel like real people because then the stakes feel more real and, and i guess part of what i wanted to do with lovecraft country too was take sort of classic genre tropes that that had even been done to death but that had never really properly featured anybody but a white protagonist and see what happened or what changed when you put in a black protagonist particularly in that that era of american history the one example i like to use is is the the dreams of the witch house where atticus's friend letitia comes into some money and decides to buy a house and so on one level it's this sort of classic first time home buyer gets a deal on a house that's too good to be true and it turns out to be haunted and that's been done a million times, but in this case, it's a black woman buying a house in a white neighborhood. So in addition to the ghost, she's also got to deal with neighbors who are looking to burn her out. And that together just just takes it somewhere that I, I hadn't seen before. I had originally come up with the idea of Lovecraft Country as a TV series pitch back in, I think it was 2007. I was invited to do pitch ideas to some people from Fox Studios, and one of the ideas was Lovecraft Country, and they were like, well, you know, I mean, it was, it was a, it's a period piece, it's an almost entirely black cast, and it's as much about the horrors of racism as about horror, and I, I think this was just a little too beyond foreseeable on television at that time. So it didn't get picked up, and you turned it into a novel instead, and then later it turned out that there might be some interest after all? One of the people who was interested was Jordan Peele. And what was funny, this was before Get Out had even been announced, but my CAA guy called and said, well, yeah, one of the people who wants to meet you is Jordan Peele, and he's mostly known for comedy, but apparently he wants to get into horror. So and I said, fine, let me talk to him. And, and then I found out Misha Green, who did Underground, was also going to be on the call, and then I started to get really excited. And it was one of the best phone calls I've ever had with folks from Hollywood because they got what I'd been trying to do and they, they really wanted to do it too. And, um, and then get out happened. And as soon as I saw the trailer for get out, I started laughing because I was like, Oh, okay. Now I know why Jordan Peele likes this novel. And, and I also was excited because I knew that 
the movie was going to be very successful and that would make it much, much easier to pitch the TV series idea. And again, that, that was truer than I realized. The, the, the part about HBO picking it up, that I, I learned about maybe 24 hours before the rest of the world did. So I was still bouncing off the walls when the news broke. But it's, yeah, it's just been an amazing ride so far. So, so speaking of rides, there's a whole range of how involved an author can be. Like sometimes I think book sells and it goes away and the author's totally hands off. And sometimes it's like they're writing the script and they're on the set. Do you, are you like involved in it at all? Or do you get a peek at what's going on? I'm, I'm at this point, I'm sort of on the fringes looking in. I mean, I'm, I'm listed as a consulting producer, so I'm a resource to be drawn on if they need me. And I, you know, early on, I sent a lot of research stuff to Misha Green when she was getting ready to write the pilot. But I'm not in the writer's room, so um, and I'm not planning to relocate to Chicago where they're doing the filming. Um, so the, the, it'll, it'll probably be more a, a thing of they'll they'll get in touch if they if they want to bounce ideas off me, and if they don't, that's fine too. Um, it's like my version of the story is already done. And there's part of that's kind of excited to see what they're going to do differently and, and where they're going to take it beyond that. Um, so I, I think I, I will probably get to visit the filming on set uh, sometime next month. Um, but beyond that, I'm really not sure how much involvement I'm going to have. And, you know, so, but it's, it's, it's kind of exciting. It's, it's, I, I'm sorry I don't have more to tell you. No, that's think, okay. <laughs> I'm still sort of discovering exactly what, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was looking, you know, in, in getting ready to talk to you, I was doing some Googling, and they're still, like, announcing casting. You know, I think it was just a couple, like, last week maybe, that Courtney B. Vance is going to be. Yeah, Angelou Ellis, and, yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, that's the best part, is the, it, it, these things seem to be total surprises to me, too, so yeah. I'll be working on something else or doing something entirely different. My wife will call up, oh, guess what just dropped on Twitter? We got another, you know, cast member. And so it's, yeah, it's like the best advent calendar ever. <laughs> are there any scenes, without spoiling too much, that you are really excited to see or anything that you're especially apprehensive about? No, not really. I'm, I'm mostly just curious to see... I mean, part of it is I've never had anything I've, I've done filmed before, and I know that there there will inevitably be differences. So it's going to that's going to be odd dialogue in particular. If it'll it'll be odd having people say stuff that's kind of like what I wrote, but different, uh -huh. and probably in a different tone of voice than I imagined. Um, but another part of just really excited to see what changes they ring on it and what they decide to make different. So, uh, but I think that's just going to be a lot of fun. I mean. One of the things I liked about the idea of Lovecraft Country is that it's an idea that you can really, it can support multiple interpretations. So it's it's going to be neat to see what they do, where they go. And horror is a genre. I feel like some of my favorite writers are really good at just sort of gesturing at like what's in the shadows or down the hallway or under the bed and like letting your mind fill in mm -hmm. all of these blanks. And there's something so powerful about that. Um, that you don't necessarily get when you watch a, a version of it that's on film or television. Right, the monster's scarier yeah. before you see it. Exactly. Um, is there anything, if you, you could give advice on the subject, about balancing like what you show and what you tell? No, because it, a lot of that really depends on... on what what the director's vision is going to be of that i mean you can you can still you can still get the best of both worlds with that too of like just you know like i'm very curious there's there's one of the stories in the book is about a, a devil doll coming to life and i'll be very curious to see what they do with that um but i have a feeling that's going to be show and scare the crap out of people um 
Um, and beyond that, no, I, I, I don't really, I, I, far be it from me to, to give advice because I'm, I'm not an expert on, on film at all. I, I know what I like and I know when something works for me, but uh, there's just so many different ways you can go with it. So I, I, I'll just be curious to see what they do. Are there any recent films, books in the horror genre that you've been really excited about lately? Just like anything you're reading right now that's interesting? Um, hmm... Well, actually, it's funny. I, I will. I, this is actually something I've read before, but I will go ahead and recommend it again because it was a, a big influence on on Lovecraft Country. In fact, gave me the initial idea. Um, it was a book by James Lowen, James W. Lowen, called Sundown Towns, and I just the, the new edition has just come out, and his editor is sending me a copy. Um, and it's a, a story about the history of whites only communities in America. It's a, it's a fascinating sort of lost history, mostly, and this is the thing, when you say sundown town, people think it's that's a southern thing, and it's not. It's mostly in the north and the west, because the south in America kind of embraced the fact that it was racist, whereas in the north and the far west was just as much into segregation, but people were in denial about what they were doing and what was happening, so it was like they'd drive all the black people out of town and then forget that that had happened, and... Basically, the book explains why there are states and cities and neighborhoods, you know, like whole states in the North where you, you don't expect to see a black face. And it didn't happen because the black people decided that they didn't want to live there. It was just because they were terrorized out of the, the community when they tried to live there. And um, so it's like this, this forgotten history of how the United States came to look the way it does demographically. And in passing, he talks about the, the, the Green Book, which was the real-life version of the Safe Negro Travel Guide. Anyway, that's, that's coming out in a new edition, and it's, it's definitely worth your time to read. That is something that I had not, I'd never heard of a sundown town before I started Lovecraft Country. And I was like, it's a what? And I had to pause and, you know, do a little research. So, yeah, the, the name for people who don't know comes from the idea it's a town that it, 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 traditionally, if you are black, you should not be found there after dark. If you are, you are summarily, you're subject to be summarily executed or at least, you know, treated very badly. Um, and, uh, in a lot of places, I mean, it, it, they, you were not particularly well treated during the daytime either. But there are there are definitely places where that was the the custom was you you got warned once as it started to get dark, and if you were still there afterwards, you were in trouble. Uh, so yeah, and that it's not an isolated incident. It was, I think he Lowen in the book says something like the the vast majority of incorporated places, you know basically had a, had a standing policy against African-Americans being there. And some excluded other groups as well, but black folks really were, were singled out for special treatment in that regard. So part of the reason that I set the novel largely in the North was because you, you have the same level of racism in the South, but there's this additional level of paranoia where people will be lying to your face that, of course, that's the reason you can't stay here, but I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you that we've rented the last room or... So it's it's sort of all of the all of the worst aspects of segregation plus you're made crazy in the bargain and that that to me seemed to sort of match the the whole concept of horror and in a way the sort of Lovecraftian cosmic horror too so um, and it's yeah it's just a, it's also it's a story that not as many people have heard so I, I thought that was worth telling.
So next we're going to talk about something that's a little controversial in the world of libraries and books. Is the book always better than the movie? I'm going to go ahead and say no. The book is not always better than the movie. Give me facts. What is an example <laughs> of a film that's better than a book? Um, Jurassic Park. So I actually have read Jurassic Park probably like six or seven times. I loved it as a young teenager. But the movie is basically perfect. It's so exciting. That scene with the raptor in the kitchen is, I believe, a formative experience for a generation. That's a great example. And so that's a book that turned into a film that you loved. Are there any that you hated? Oh, boy. (laughs) There are some that I hated. Um, This might also be controversial. I don't love the first two Harry Potter movies. But the third is so good. The third is good. The fourth is excellent. But the first one in particular has a lot of, like, kooky angle shots to show that we're (laughs) worried about something. Of course I saw it anyway, but I think that that was the beginning of my decision not to see some things made, some books that I loved made into movies, because once you've seen a movie of something, I feel like your own image of the book kind of gets erased in some ways. So I have a funny story. (laughs) Um, I saw the trailer for the movie Never Let Me Go, which Mm -hmm. is based on a book of the same title, before I'd read the book. So I was like, all right. I have to read it first, and then I'll see it. But when I saw the trailer, I saw Kira Knightley and Carrie Mulligan and got it in my mind that they were the inverse of the characters. Oh, no. So the whole time I was reading, I was hearing and picturing one of them in the other role. And when I finally watched the movie, I was just like, no, it's wrong. It's so wrong. (laughs) And I, I feel like that was true with Harry Potter, too, is like as soon as I got to know Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert, um, I just I couldn't help but see and hear them as I was reading along with those later books. Yeah, I totally agree. It really shapes uh, the way that your reading experience goes if you've seen the movie. For that reason, I have refused to see um, Bridge to Terabithia, which mm-hmm. is one of my all-time favorite books that I love so deeply for its really um, nuanced and um, thoughtful exploration of grief in childhood. The movie did not look like it was going to go there, so I did not see it. Yeah, and there's a few, like, beloved childhood classics that I feel like flopped at the box office because they couldn't deliver mm-hmm. on that experience you had. And I'm thinking of The Giver, mm-hmm. The Golden Compass. Yep. These are books that people loved, and when they got to the screen, they were like, it wasn't like I remember. Yeah, I think even A Wrinkle in Time, which was really successful, mm-hmm. had that same issue that people don't always want to see something that they've held in their own mind um, turned into somebody else's vision. Um, Are there any books that you'd love to see get translated to the screen? Um, So I am fully on board with the current resurgence of romantic comedies and the things that I want to see on screen are well, like in that vein, basically every romance novel Uh, You may know that Shonda Rhimes is producing a 
series for Netflix based on Julia Quinn's Regency romance series, The Bridgertons. I am very excited about that. I didn't know that, but I'm, I'm here for literally anything she puts her name on. Yeah, agreed. I, it's like <laughs> such an exciting combination. I cannot wait. So something I can't wait to come out is um, being made for Hulu. And it's an adaptation of Lindy West Shrill. Oh, nice. And I'm so excited because A.D. Bryant is the main character. And yeah. in the writing room, we not only have Lindy, but one of my other favorite writers, Samantha Irby. Oh, awesome. They're both so funny, and I can't wait to see them bring that to life. Yeah. I also love historical fiction translated to screen because that's something where it's hard for my mind to fill in the blanks. I don't necessarily know what the style of dress is or what the um, appropriate period house would look like. So there's a novel called The Summer Before the War uh, that I would love to see produced by the BBC. It's set uh, in the 1914, the summer before uh, World War I. Obviously, it would fill the early season Downton Abbey-shaped hole in my heart. <laughs> It also has like a real slow burn romance, which I think is something that usually translates well to the screen because you can get a lot of like longing glances. Basically, I just want longing glances in period costumes. Speaking of longing glances, I feel like we couldn't talk about book adaptations without mentioning Twilight and subsequently Fifty Shades of Grey. Absolutely. <laughs> so... Those were two that had their audience and beloved fans, but was largely like critically panned. Do you think erotic tension is different in the theater of the imagination? Yes. And I think those novels in particular, but in general, uh, romantic comedies or romances, not comedies like those, require um, the viewer to be able to get inside the skin of the main character and really feel those emotions and be able to imagine themselves. I think Fifty Shades of Grey in particular is really sort of like wish fulfillment, right? It's like imagining yourself. Someone's wish. (laughs) Imagining yourself getting swept away by a billionaire, right? And if you can't, for whatever reason, because you don't like the actress or you can't identify with her. Or their chemistry is terrible. Or their chemistry is really <laughs> terrible. You know, um, they're just much more dependent on those kinds of things. Like, what translates well to screen? I actually think the Hunger Games movies mm. work really well. I yeah. think they take advantage of the technology to reflect some stuff that Susan Collins was thinking about but couldn't... Um, but couldn't necessarily show because of the first person of those books. Mm-hmm. I think they sort of, they make the changes that are necessary to like give, to maintain the tone and the feeling, which is really, I think, why people read. Uh, but that I think that's an example of where the book, the tone mm-hmm. is captured. And I think for me, that's kind of the key. Like, did you get not the plot points not how the character looks, but, like, what the book is about. Like, what's the feeling of it? One thing that I think is sort of interesting to think about is, like, what's the difference between a faithful adaptation and an update or a translation or some other kind of, like, play? Um, This happens a ton with Shakespeare, right? Like, we have all of those Kenneth Branagh updates. Um, We have the... Baz Luhrmann, 1996, Romeo and Juliet, which is 
the greatest film of all time. I feel comfortable <laughs> saying that. Uh, no, it's not. But it's so good. And I think, again, like, if the Raptors in the Kitchen is one uh, cultural touchstone for women in their 30s, then this one is another. Um, but because it's out of copyright and it's been played with so much before, there's kind of this permission to, like, mm-hmm. do whatever you want with it. Um, and I love that. And I wish we got to see more of it. I think there are a lot of reasons that we don't. So my only drawback that I can really see about adapting books to films is that frequently it means that we're just telling the same stories over and over again. Right. Right. And I kind of want to see new stories that we haven't heard at all before. Yeah. But that reinterpretation, I think, opens up like a huge new genre of possibilities. Yeah. I think um, like when you think about Sherlock Holmes, just Mm -hmm. in the last like decade, I guess, the BBC Sherlock, which is so popular and is certainly one sort of modern take. But there's also a show on CBS in which the Watson character is played by Lucy Liu and is like really great. It's maybe not as sort of stylish (laughs) as the BBC Sherlock, but it's like really wonderful. And we see this in books too, right? Like these stories that people keep playing with and reinventing to so that they're not just telling the same old stories. Um, I, on the other end of that is, like, the Hobbit movies, mm-hmm. I think. Like, I love the Lord of the Rings movies very much. But I feel like what happened was they were super successful. And then they were like, oh, we need to just keep telling this story. And so instead of one Hobbit movie, which is what we probably should have gotten, we got three Hobbit movies and now there's a TV series in development just to sort of, I think, build off that Game of Thrones popularity and all of that. Um, and that's where you are. You're just telling the same story over and over again. And we're not necessarily getting different points of view or different voices. Or And that's definitely true of, like, the Marvel DC Comics universe. I'm not sure I need any more of those. <laughs> I agree with you, except I just saw the trailer for Captain Marvel starring Brie Larson as this pilot who's, like, maybe an alien. I don't know. I read the comic books, but it was a long time ago. And I was sort of like, oh, okay. Maybe I'll give it another shot. (laughs) But I agree. So many superhero movies. And really, there are so many other stories to tell. Are there any movies that are based on books that you think people would be surprised to learn? Started out with book origins? Oh, gosh. I think yes. 10 Things I Hate About You is the one that comes to mind for me. Right. Which was based on? The Taming of the Shrew. Exactly. And so Clueless also has literary origins. Yes. That was based on? Emma? Emma? Yes. <laughs> oh, here's one that I think people know is a book. Sort of, but definitely the movie is more well-known, and that's The Princess Bride. I didn't know that was a book. Yeah, it is a book. The movie is based on a book, and the book is mostly the fairy tale, so the framing device of the grandfather isn't in the book, but the fairy tale has all of these sort of, like, asides. So it's very, again, like, tonally similar. Uh, It's really fun. I recommend it if you are a fan of The Princess Bride. So, to wrap up, your favorite book to screen adaptation like one that you think everyone should see ghost world oh it's a great pick it's one of my favorite comics and the movie just captures this ennui of like teenage girl conversations in the suburbs so perfectly 
So my pick isn't going to rock anyone's world, but I think that the 1996 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice is basically a perfect movie or book to screen translate adaptation. Is that the one with Colin Firth? It is the one with Colin Firth. (laughs) So if you love film, you totally have to check out this new streaming service that the library has called Canopy. Tell me about Canopy. It's kind of like if Netflix had all the best indie films, documentaries, Criterion Collection movies, and classic and foreign films. Nice. So I haven't explored it that much. Can you give a couple of examples of what might be in there? Breakfast at Tiffany's, the Audrey Hepburn classic based on the Truman Capote book. Sure. And I Am Not Your Negro, which was inspired by an unfinished manuscript from James Baldwin. Huh, that's kind of an unusual combination of titles. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially because the latter explores institutionalized racism in America, and the former is maybe more known for perpetuating it. (laughs) Breakfast at Tiffany's is a classic, but there are some uncomfortable aspects to the film, like the yellow face of a white actor portraying an Asian character. And what I love about Canopy is that it goes above and beyond just giving like plot descriptions to viewers. It actually has this really wonderful contextualizing editor's note about how the director, in retrospect, really owns up to the fact that this was a bad choice and also provides like these other documentaries you should watch about Asian representation on film. Fascinating. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. If you want to start streaming, go to kclist.org slash canopy with a K and try that out today. Fu is a novelist and a poet. Her most recent book, The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore, follows five girls at a summer camp who end up stranded alone on an island and looks at the way that that event echoes through their lives for years to come. Kim's writing has appeared in all kinds of cool places, like The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Hazlitt. She was born in Canada, but now lives in the Seattle area, and we are happy to have her join us at the Bellevue Library Makerspace to talk about her work. My name is Kim Fu, and I'm a poet and a novelist. Uh, I live in Seattle. And uh, my latest book is called The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore. Uh, It starts in an all-girls sleepaway camp in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, where they hike and go on outdoor adventures and learn survival skills. Uh, And one feature of this camp is that they go on an overnight kayaking trip, where the concept is they just kayak to a nearby island, stay overnight, and come back. Uh, But for one group of girls... uh, It goes a little awry, and they end up stranded and alone, with uh, no adults to help them. And then the book follows uh, these girls through this event, and then uh, as well through their lives beyond the camp. So you grew up in suburban Vancouver, and the story's set in like coastal BC, and you live in Seattle now. Could you speak to how living in the Pacific Northwest shaped how you wrote the story? Sure. Um, The location of the camp is actually left purposely ambiguous like it's kind of just somewhere along this coast um i've heard people interpret it as bc or washington or oregon um but the landscape is all made up because i didn't want to be locked into the particular geography of of the coastline in any of those places um and for me the that landscape was really important like obviously you know because it's where i've grown up and where i live now and where i spent so much of my life uh it's 
you know, it's, it's in, it's in me. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was more, I thought it suited the story, um, because I feel like we forget living here sometimes that it is dangerous and wild in part because, you know, the weather is really mild and then sort of everyone is really outdoorsy. Like everyone you meet is, you know, goes hiking, hiking, you know, every weekend and it's just right there. Right. Um, but, and then, you know, sometimes people never come back and it's just not something we think about. Uh, and so I feel like it has the, the, the wilderness here has a specific feel to it. Um, also because it feels very untamable kind of to me, like it's very, it's very lush and green here. Um, and a lot of it is, is wild that you're kind of always beating it back, sort of. It feels like a force. And when you were a kid, did you go to summer camp or did you consider yourself like an indoor and outdoor kid? I was, well, <laughs> I thought of my, I, I would have described myself as an indoor kid, like a book reading video game loving kid. Um, but where I lived was kind of like up in the mountain uh, in near Vancouver. Uh, so even though I was not an outdoorsy kid, it was kind of just by nature of being there, you'd see like, bears wandering through your backyard and um and you would end up going hiking and stuff and I didn't go to a camp like this one um but my public elementary school had a outdoor school so we'd go for a few days um and it was it was very similar to the idea like there was hiking and outdoor rock climbing and uh things like this and one time we almost got stuck on a peninsula when the tide came in uh and and that memory definitely fed into this into this concept and the plot invites a kind of easy, if imperfect, comparison to Lord of the Flies, but with girls. And I don't know if you guys read last fall, there was this article, I think, in The New Yorker that imagined what, like, an all-girl Lord of the Flies oh, plot yes. would look like. And it was so funny. There's this part where someone says, like, Simone staggered out of the woods, her hair matted and muddy. She wore a crude garment that she had fashioned out of leaves, her eyes wild. Simone, cried Roger, I love your dress. Thanks, Simone said, gesturing. It has pockets. <laughs> and I just love that. And, like, it started this conversation with other people chiming in. Like, Jessica Valenti described uh, the situation as, like, a bunch of girls apologizing to each other until they died. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like, that's funny, of course, but, like, what people get wrong about how the dynamics of that situation would change in an all-girl setting. One thing I always think of is uh, I have a niece. She's she's older now. When she was about this age, what would happen is if she was like in a room with closed door with her friends and you walked in, they would all look at you. And there was this moment where you knew like you were interrupting something serious, like there was something there hiding from you. Um, and I, I do feel like little girls, I mean, like children of that age in general, like create very complex kind of social hierarchies and worlds with their own rules uh, that they keep hidden from adults. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert for the book a little bit, um, there's not enough, um, there's not enough of them. They're not stranded long enough just to form a new society. Um, but I do think I had similar aims in, in the sense of the forces that animate them are similar to the forces in society. Like they do, they do echo the, they do echo the structures that they grow up into and that, you know, already existed around them and they had already internalized them by that point, um, as in Lord of the Flies, um. But I do think that their like their experience is very is is definitely shaped by gender and and especially the response when they come back, I think, and how other people interpret those events uh, and how pe other people see it and kind of the narrative they're told about what happened as opposed to what actually happened. Um, and the narr that narrative, you know, bakes into them and is sort of forms a part of their life, too. 
because um, because even though you know they remember on one on one side, they also I think they also internalize that aversion that adults have afterward of like oh these poor helpless little girls they were stranded in the woods and then they were found by pure chance like you know um, isn't that isn't wasn't that lucky you know um, as opposed to like what actually happens. And there are all these descriptions in the book that feel so specific to childhood, like really real and vivid. And I'd forgotten what that was actually like until I was reading your words. And uh, especially about like the powerlessness that kids can feel, that lack of autonomy. And just, I was just curious if you still have access to like diaries from childhood or journals or if that's all just really fresh in your mind still. Um, I did keep diaries as a kid, and I think that helped. Even though I don't reference them now, I think just the act of writing everything down sort of cements it in a different way inside you. So to me, the way you write childhood is very different than the way you write adulthood. Like, I think if you write a child experience just moment to moment, uh, it feels very fraught and it feels very intense because I think that's how children experience the world. Like, everything that's happening is brand new, Um Whereas I, when I write about adults, uh, it tends to be more episodic or like a collection of stories that forms patterns. Um, but there's like, you know, there's long stretches that are not that aren't relevant. You know, like if I was writing about a kid, I would never, you know, write like three years later or something like that the way I would about adulthood where a story can can take that form. But yeah, I think I think I think journaling helps, but not not in that way, not by referencing it directly, but just I think it's cements it in you. Is there anything you'd like adults with children in their lives to take away from reading Lost Girls to remember about what it was like to be young? I think children are are different um, than than adults, and I, as opposed to you know un, lesser or like undeveloped adults, like I think they have they sort of have different powers, you know that um, I think we lose a lot of the time. Um, like, I, th- I think it's tempting to think of children sometimes as, like, you know, dumb little adults, right? Um, and which, you know, which I think is not the case. I think I think they experience the world in, like, a totally different way. Um, and with an intensity that is difficult to access again as an adult. And I think it's very, especially noticeable if you look at the art of, of uh, children and teenagers. Um, you know, because, like, every idea feels to them like they're the first person who's ever had it. And there's... Yeah, there's like a rawness and, and, and a confidence that most people never have again, I think. It's a book by Linda Berry. It was a graphic collection. Uh, it was a collection of graphic vignettes called uh, 100 Demons. And one of them was called Resilience. Um, and when I, when I, re- I read this book like as a teenager, you know, as a teenager like, in, like a long time ago, like in my early 20s. Uh, and then I, uh, I read it again like recently and I saw that that vignette had like a lot of influence on the book in a way I hadn't noticed before. And then, because the major idea of that vignette was that the resilience of children is like a fantasy that adults have. Um, the idea that because they forget things, they're not affected by them. Um, or that like we only think about the effects and trauma in, in really obvious ways, kind of like we, we think of being traumatized as being a very particular thing, a very particular response, whereas it could be very subtle or something, or like unconscious, it could be something you're not aware of. Um, and you can still be affected by things that you have forgotten, quote unquote. Um, so I think that the value of that, of like how huge informative experiences can be, um, even when they seem really inconsequential to you as an adult, uh, because you, you know, you come with all like a, a lifetime of knowledge that they don't have. Um, 
yeah, just remembering that how different that experience is when, when you're in it. Are there other authors you admire who you think get childhood, girlhood, womanhood right? Uh, there's a recent book by uh, Claire Massoud. I don't know how to say her name. I think that's right. Um, the Burning Girl. And that book was interesting to me because the, I feel like the, you know, the girlhood she chose to write about was sort of unremarkable in a way. You know, it was very like straight of, you know, straight down the road in so many ways. You know, she's, she's, uh, you know, white and she's in like a upper middle class suburb and, and sort of like nothing that terrible happens to her. <laughs> um, and yet it's kind of a nightmare, you know, <laughs> like it's just this totally ordinary, totally privileged, like adolescence. Um, and it, and it feels moment to moment, kind of like, a, like a horror story. Um, because I think that is, that is how it feels, right. Um, you know, adding on top any other marginalization, right. Um, and so that book was fascinating to me for that reason, that just, it's like the most banal girlhood is still kind of, <laughs> kind of horrifying. It's interesting too, when you say that, like, um, everything feels really immediate. Cause I think some of my most vivid memories from childhood are like things that are not very like in the grand scheme of my life they don't seem like they should be the things that shaped me but it's like oh I really remember one time that I got in trouble for like not sitting in my chair the right way or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's sort of interesting to think about like what's the impact of that in all of these subtle ways and how does that like come back to your life much more than things like my family took a big trip or my grandparent died or not that mm-hmm. the big things like being left alone on an island can also <laughs> shape you, but that sort of immediacy uh, can come out in all kinds of interesting ways. Yeah. And I think like for a lot of people, it's hard to admit that too. like to say, you know, it, it feels silly sometimes to be like, I'm still holding on to this thing or this thing had a huge impact on me because it's hard to explain now as an adult or to other adults, just as it was then to explain to other adults why this event was so upsetting. Um, but like, I definitely think it shapes how people are. Does that make you more interested in writing about childhood? Like trying to sort of get back to that or explore that idea? Is that what draws you to it? Yeah, I'm definitely not done (laughs) with, uh, especially that particular age. I feel like, um, like age nine to 11, uh, it, to me, it's a really interestingly divergent age. Um, again, my niece, um, she's, she does ballet, um, so her, her ballet school uh, orders by age, and so you watch the show, and it goes out. It's like the four-year-old dance, and the five, and the six, and the seven, and the eight. Uh, and then when they... And they all kind of look the same, and you know, in the first few ages. They're all, like, about the same height, and they're, like, just little... They're toddling around. Uh, and then at about, you know, age nine, it kind of... It just explodes. Like, they're suddenly all over the place, like, like developmentally, right? Um, and I think that that's true both, like, physically, but also, you know, in terms of maturity and just sort of mental development. I feel like suddenly everyone's kind of all over the place and some people are really empathetic and some people are like, you know, really like socially adept or even manipulative. And some people are still just like, you know, wide eyed little children. And and yeah. And I feel like that's, that age is kind of a mess for that reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did you identify most strongly with any one of the characters in the book? Um, I identified with each one very strongly while I was writing her section. Um, and I kind of needed to write it that way. And I kind of felt like people had to read it that way too. Like you needed to spend a long time with each one. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like there is an aspect to each of them that I, that I relate to very strongly. And then when I look back at the book, it's, it's always hard to answer that question because it's like, who's your favorite child? <laughs> um, because yeah, I feel like I went through something really intense with each, with each one. 
And this is your second novel, and you've also published a book of poetry. What do you enjoy about working in each of those mediums, and what's different about the experience? Uh, poetry for me comes more, much more naturally. Um, I, I feel like, and it, it's also harder for me to explain my process, kind of. I feel like I sit down and I write poems, kind of. <laughs> um, whereas uh, fiction, I go into it with a, a lot more intentionality. It's also the way I read, too. Like, I feel like I just read books of poetry, um, whereas... I, I seek out certain kinds of fiction and I do a lot of research and I, I try to learn from everything I read. Um, and then fiction for me is, is a bit of a grind. Like I have to, you know, I do a ton of drafts. I do a ton of experimenting. I throw away lots of stuff. Um, I depend a lot on other people to read and give me feedback. And, uh, and it, and it's like, it's a more of a workhorse kind of thing. Um, whereas poetry is more something I do by myself. And it, you know, again, it's very mysterious sort of even to me. Um, and I also think like the reason I write fiction is for other people to read it. Um, I want, I want other people to read it. I want to tell a story to other people and I want them to respond to it. Uh, I think the great pleasure I get at poetry is the process of writing it. Um, and if I was the last person on, on earth, I would still write poetry, um, whereas I might not write fiction if there's no one to share it with. And what are you reading these days? Um, I just finished, a. That Kind of Mother by uh, Ruman Imam. Is that, is that right? Ruman Alam. Alam, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah uh, that is an intense book. <laughs> it also kind of, it, I, like, I read it in one day. Um, mm-hmm. The the minutia of mothering and parenting written about that way in a moment-to-moment way uh, was just was really, really fascinating somehow. Um, in addition to kind of its its portrait of whiteness, I guess, uh, was, was really insightful. Um, and then again, it was just like a book I couldn't put down, kind of like, yeah, I literally read it in a day. Uh, and I just started um, Number One Chinese Restaurant by Lillian Lee. Uh, and it's, it's very entertaining so far, but I've just started. Uh, yeah, I'm, there's so many <laughs> books that I'm, I'm excited about. It feels like a good year. <laughs> I also love that kind of mother and had sort of the same experience of finding it like really gripping, even though sort of like not that much really happens and in fact the parts that are sort of the most actiony are like given the least amount of yeah. space and consideration yeah. it's like all of this minutia of parenthood is exactly right and then it's like oh and we adopted this child of a different race and then like all of this sort of like meditative stuff about who she is and how she's writing and uh and yeah it's sort of the big moments are not the focus of the novel and yet it manages to be really compelling I think because it's so close in on her perspective. Yeah. Like, I think he meant it to be a little claustrophobic and like a little mm-hmm. maddening sort of because mm-hmm. you're really trapped in what she sees of the world. So you know that these really like these really important things are happening to kind of just off camera for her, you mm-hmm. know, because she's like not paying attention to them and it makes her all the more like maddening and rich as a character. Mm-hmm. That's a great book. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of motherhood, I love the way you drew Nita and her relationship with her child, especially there's this tender moment where they sort of share a secret, telling each other that I love you and I hate you, <laughs> but no one else is around to listen. But she's she's such an interesting mother, an unlikely mother in some ways. Um, what were you thinking about motherhood when you wrote her part? So I think... Um Agnita's experience was very heavily shaped by kind of a her her very specific type of intelligence. Um, 
that she's kind of hyper-rational and, and very good at, you know, retaining and processing, like, large amounts of information and maybe not so emotionally intelligent or empathetic. Uh, and that, especially because she was a woman, and more specifically, like, a woman of color, that, that she, like, having this kind of intelligence sort of shape her life in a specific way and made it feel very frustrating to her. Um, and I think when she sees that intelligence in her child, uh, her, you know, her son, um, she's both, like, a little jealous and, but also, like, hopeful. Um, and then I also think, um, I think for both, this sounds, this is a weird way to put this, but I feel like for both children and for readers, kind of sometimes it's hard to see mothers as complex individuals, um, who are coming to the role with misgivings or baggage, uh, or, or who just don't, or, or, you know, with, with less than, you know, unbridled joy, uh, because the stakes are so high, right? Because it's like, it's their job that the child survives, uh, that for someone to do it half-heartedly or to be like, to feel, you know, resentments or complications, uh, is sort of inherently a little frightening, uh, even though it's the reality, you know, I think a hundred percent of the time. Um, and so I feel like Anita, that was naturally heightened. And so that was interesting to me. In some ways, your book is not what I picture when I imagine, like, a summertime fun beach read. But it's also <laughs> perfect for that. Like, I could devour it in a day in some sort of natural setting. Um, do you have any other favorite books that are sort of like that? Like, maybe not prime candidates for a frothy seafoam, but, like, a more serious, very bingeable sort of summer read? Oh, um, my favorite, like, summer binge reads are... Uh, Edith Wharton's books, um, and then uh, Sarah Waters' books, her her historical romances. Like I think both of those books, they're both both of those authors. Like they're the writing is is literary, but it's also like fun and juicy, and you you know you can't help looking through it. And it does have like a airy summer feel to them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I don't know what it is about a collection of short essays with an incredibly long name, but they're always some of my favorites. There's a lot of books that fit this pattern, like David Foster Wallace's A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, or Miranda July's No One Belongs Here More Than You. And my favorite book to come out in the last year, Samantha Irby's We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. They're all a mouthful and wonderful, and I've got a 12-word long title for you. Oh my god. <laughs> Give it to me. One day we'll all be dead and none of this will matter. <laughs> it's a book by Sachi Cole, who's a writer for BuzzFeed and a person totally worth following on Twitter. It's her debut essay collection, and she shares these experiences as the millennial daughter of Indian immigrants growing up in Western culture. She's got this sharp wit and candid humor. She confronts broader issues of racism and sexism, self-image, love, and family, and she's able to hit me right in the feels just as easily as she makes me laugh. Sounds awesome. 
Another mouthful of a title is Text Me When You Get Home. It's a book about the evolution and triumph of modern female friendship. So the author, Kayleen Schaefer, uh, cites herself as this like unlikely chronicler of the subject because she's someone who grew up seeing other women as competition, trying to be like the Jillian Flynn-style cool girl that's so often <laughs> described, and someone who really wanted to be accepted by men. And it wasn't until she decided not to marry her long-term boyfriend that she came to see these really important female friendships in her life and wanted to explore that subject. So the book mixes anecdotes from her life, some cultural analysis, historical research, and interviews with other fascinating women to explore the history and importance of bonds between besties. So this is a book that I would suggest reading and then passing along to your best friend. I love it. I have a non-essay collection with a very long title to talk about. Uh, It's a British murder mystery set in a country house, so already well within my wheelhouse, but it has the added fun of being sort of a Groundhog Day situation. So when the narrator wakes up on the first page, he doesn't remember anything except for a single name. And every day, he wakes up in a new body for eight days until he can solve this this murder that happens on the evening of this big party happening at the house. It's a... Very creepy, very fascinating mystery. I've never read anything like it. Full disclosure, I'm not done yet. I don't know who did it, and I have no idea, but I'm really enjoying the reading experience. That's The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evil in Hardcastle. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett, and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.